which prominent comic book writer worked as a janitor, security guard, and ice cream truck driver before ever getting the opportunity to put words into the mouth of the Cape Crusader? Chuck Dixon was certainly no overnight success story. He toiled for nearly a dozen years in New York City doing odd jobs while perfecting his craft in hopes that one day someone would give him an opportunity to do the one thing that he says was the only thing that could make him happy. And boy has it. Chuck has written well over a thousand comic books and made legions of fans equally delighted in the process. Chuck's career took a serendipitous turn when legendary DC Comics editor Denny O'Neill hired him to write a miniseries for Robin the Boy Wonder. The result? Chuck became one of the most influential writers of Batman ever, writing various Batman, Detective Comics, Robin, Nightwing, and Batgirl titles for nearly two decades. Thus far, Chuck's writing career has spanned over 30 plus years and shows no signs of slowing down. He has written everything from The Punisher to The Simpsons, Superman to Scooby-Doo, and everything in between. In fact, when Hollywood needs a comic book adaptation of a movie, cartoon, or book, Chuck is one of the first guys they call. He's written adaptations for The Hobbit, A Nightmare on Elm Street, SpongeBob SquarePants, The A-Team, and yes, even Snakes on a Plane. The door swings both ways, too, as Chuck created the comic book Birds of Prey, which was subsequently turned into a television series on the WB Network. He's had other dalliances with Hollywood as well, including his 80s hitman comic series Alias, which was in development with Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Frank Darabont and director Joe Dante, and a live-action program on the Cartoon Network called The Vanishers. We'll talk to Chuck about his writing, Hollywood's infatuation with comic books, and how he manages to juggle multiple genres and styles as Chuck Dixon joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast, the podcast of writers. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Uh, today, we're talking with renowned comic book writer Chuck Dixon, whose work I've respected for a long, long time. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chuck. Sure, no problem. Um, Chuck, uh, you're a very prolific writer. And by, when I say very prolific, I mean very prolific. Uh, I know you often write multiple titles uh, a month, every month. Um, and currently, you're working on G.I. Joe for IDW, uh, Wheel of Time, which is based on the books by Robert Jordan, uh, and Lone Ranger, uh, both for Dynamite. Um, this being a podcast for writers, uh, and due to the fact that you've probably written more comics than most person will read in their lifetime, uh, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, how did you get your first big break? What was that process like for you? Uh, well, I, I used to go to conventions uh, as much as possible because uh, editors used to come to conventions, and, and so you could talk to editors. They don't come as much as they used to. And, um, you know, I would try to develop a rapport with an editor uh, so they would maybe recognize me next time they met me and then hopefully call and get an interview so I could go up to either DC or Marvel. And that process went on for about 10 years. You know, and I would go away discouraged and then build up my gumption again and take another run at it. And uh, finally, uh, Larry Hama gave me a break. Uh, he hired me to work on the uh, second iteration of uh, Savage Tales. Uh, he, he did a magazine for a while. It was all war and Western comics for, for Marvel. And uh, I called him on the phone and offered him some, you know, you know, told him I'd, I'd like to be on it. And he said to send up some plot lines. And uh, I did. He bought about half of them. And I was off to the races. Uh, he went around Marvel and began to recommend me to other editors. And, uh, you know, I just sort of moved on from there. 
That's great. I actually am a, a fan of Larry's as well. I know of him. He's sort of the godfather of G.I. Joe, uh, which actually you're working on right now for IDW. Um, so uh, in terms of a writer, a, comic, a writer who wanted to work in the comic book industry now, uh, today, which is probably slightly different, obviously, than when you started, um, you know, back in the, in the 80, in the mid 80s. Um, what sort of advice would you have for sort of aspiring writers? Because, you know, often for an artist, it's the simple case of showing your portfolio, you know, to an editor or submitting it somewhere, sending it. Whereas a writer, it's very different. You would, you would talk briefly about it uh, in terms of getting known by the editors. How, how is that done nowadays? Do you know? Well, it's very hard to meet editors. I, I assume if you go to like a convention in New York, you can meet them, uh, you know, and probably San Diego, but most conventions, they don't show up. I mean, once upon a time, editors came to, you could meet a couple of editors at every convention. Um, it, it, the landscape's kind of changed now. There seems to be only a few ways into comic writing. One is that you... Um, you, you write a hit movie or a hit TV show, <laughs> right? <laughs> then right. you slum in the comic book world. <laughs> uh, the other way is to work in the independents and hope you get noticed. And that kind of worked for me too because uh, I was writing for Eclipse Comics doing Airboy, and that's what Denny O'Neill noticed uh, to invite me to write Robin. So, um, you know, if you can make a name for yourself there, I mean, most of the the guys who've come up in the last ten years or so started in, in small independent titles and uh, sort of apprenticed there and, you know, made their mark until editors noticed them. Right. Um, so, but, you know, in my case, I mean, Larry hired me cold. I mean, he didn't know who I was. I mean, he didn't, I, I had had some comic work published, but, you know, he didn't even care about that. He just wanted to see what I could do. Well, I guess he's got an eye for talent because uh, you both have been in the business for, for a long, long time and done some, some really terrific work. So uh, he, he obviously knew something. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, we kind of we kind of like the same stuff, which is important, um, you know, because if you ever do get to meet an editor, you want to you want to develop a rapport. I mean, I mean, early on, I I would talk to Archie Goodwin a lot, and and he would have me up to Marvel to talk to me, you know, give me interviews, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I really wasn't ready yet, but but you know, he sort of mentored me and gave me a lot of great advice, you know, and then eventually I did work with him both at Marvel and DC, but. You know, uh, writers, like you said, it's easy for an artist to show a portfolio and wow somebody, but an editor, you, you can't get them to read anything. So right. You really have to develop a sort of a personal relationship with them so that they'll welcome uh, uh, anything you write to, you know, or to show them or, or pitch to them, you know, verbally. Right, right. Um, and and speaking of you and, and, and Larry, you said you had similar tastes. And again, looking at Savage Tales, which I, I had read, um, specifically, I think I got started in it uh, because the NOM got started there. I can't remember the right. name of the actual – it was at a different title, but I right. found that stuff fascinating. And I knew there was always Westerns in there, sometimes even horror Westerns, some sort of a combination. Uh, and then Conan was always in it. Uh, um, is, is that the kind of stuff – because I know you're a fan as well, you know, I am as well, of spaghetti Westerns and things like that. It's, it's in, and I know that uh, uh, Larry's also a big fan of sort of – the military, you know, action-y stuff, which, again, you're also known for Punisher as much as, maybe not quite as much as for Batman, but, you know, you're known for G.I. Joe and, and Punisher and stuff like that. So is that the kind of stuff you guys connected with? Yeah, yeah, because he and I both like, you know, we both like history, and uh, we both like, you know, you know, the, you know, more genres outside of the superhero. I mean, 
uh, you know, martial arts stuff, samurai stuff, um, you know, westerns, any kind of historical war story. I mean, Larry let me do a story about the, the Russian Civil War. I mean, I can't – there isn't another editor who would have let me <laughs> write a story about the Russian Civil War. Right. So, um, you know – you know, and he, he, you know, and the thing is, I mean, Larry, you know, he, he's always breaking the bank with me. You know, he's, he, he'll, he'll, you got to buy this book. He, he suggests, he'll suggest a book for me. And, you know, 100% of the time, yeah, I want that book too. Right. So um, it's, you know, and that's important if you're going to, I mean, there's two things that are important that you have a rapport with your editor and then, and then building off of that, that your editor has faith in you. And if your editor has faith in you, there's nothing you can't accomplish. It's the most important aspect of the of that relationship. Right. Um, so again, then speaking about editors, um, can you maybe touch a little bit on what the editorial process is like? Uh, and specifically, I, I wanted to talk to you about um, you write for a number of different properties. And, and when I say properties, I don't mean just an average comic book. You know, uh, I, I mean The Simpsons, SpongeBob, which are you know, sort of billion-dollar empires where comics are sort of only an add-on to their, you know, basically primarily television toy market. But you also write for books like Punisher, Green Arrow, and Moon Knight, and things like that, where, you know, there, there may be some sort of ancillary market, like toys and cartoons and things, but that's not really where the, the, the characters live. Right. You know, they live on the comics. Can you describe how the editorial process may be different in terms of you know, getting storylines approved, getting characters approved, all these types of things, um, or does it just solely depend on the editor? Well, um, I don't know. I, I've always, you know, I've always approached editors as if we were partners. It's it's not really like a, a boss-employee relationship mm -hmm. to me. I mean, you know, some editors like to be, you know, the captain of the ship, you know, and that's correct. Right. But 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 to my mind, we're all rowing together. You know? right. <laughs> and we're all supposedly working toward, you know, an end product that has some quality to it. And, Every, and the everyone goes down with the ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I, my best relationships and my, and consequently my best work is done with editors who there's that give and take, you know, sure. uh, and they're not my way of the highway kind of guys. So you can talk to them. And, and the best editors, to my mind, are the ones who hire the person they think is right for the job and then let you go to town. Right. You know, and, if, and if it's not working out, it's not working out. But if it is, they just, as long as it's working and there's no mistakes being made, you know, they just let you fly off in whatever direction you're going in. And, right. um, and surprisingly, well, with licensed properties like G.I. Joe or The Simpsons, you know, they can be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. But, but G.I. Joe, Simpsons, and SpongeBob are kind of the exception. Uh, G.I. Joe is very easy to work on. Uh, Hasbro is very respectful of the comic book end of it. They have uh, employees who are full-time working little liaisons with, you know, the web comics and the print comics. And, uh, you know, and one of them is, a, is one of my former editors in G.I. Joe. So, so they've got an experienced staff who know what they're talking about. And they're not changing every six months. Right. So we're all on the same page, and, and they're very flexible at Hasbro, even though they have, you know, this is billions of dollars for them. Uh, they're very flexible, and they let us play around a lot with the characters. And then right. on SpongeBob and The Simpsons, I, I'm basically dealing directly with the creators. I mean, Matt Groening oversees all, everything at Bongo, and uh, Steve Hillenberg oversees all of SpongeBob. 
So I'm not really dealing with a corporation. I don't have to deal with Fox. I don't have to deal with Nickelodeon. I'm dealing with them. Well, that's great. Which is, which is beautiful because, yeah. you know, especially Hillenburg. I mean, he'll suggest gags all the time. Well, wouldn't this be funnier? <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, and even if I don't think it would be funnier, it's like, well, you think it's funnier, so it's your property. You know, I'm not about <laughs> right, to tell right. you. So so I've, I've been very lucky on the license end of it, you know, that, that I've been working with great people on the other end now. Now I've done like uh, film adaptation properties and stuff like that, where mm. it's it's just been a nightmare from beginning to end because uh, you're working with people who don't understand the comic book process at all. Right, and right. They, they seem to think that everything can be done by tomorrow. <laughs> right, right. So, but but I've been very fortunate, and you know, and there's always an editor between me and and whoever anyway, so it's it's not that much different. Right, so they have that sort of barrier there. Right. So um, I know you've done a lot of sort of adaptations um, in addition to obviously the work where you, the Simpsons and SpongeBob aren't really adaptations. You're sort of, you know, kind of bringing those characters from television onto uh, comics and telling new stories. You're not sort of adapting, you know, a specific storyline into the comics. Um, But I know you've done stuff for, you know, like snakes on a plane, for example. Um, and, And, and there was one that I had heard um, for California, the, uh, the, yeah, yeah. Whatever happened with that? Yeah, I, I know. I don't even know what it was for. It was supposed to be, I don't know. It was supposed to be included with the videotape or, you know, and this was still videotapes at the time. I don't know what the deal was with that. It just never saw the light of day until recently. They, somebody put it up on the internet. Um, so I finally got to see the artwork and, you know, and then there was one, um, Butch Geis and I were supposed to do the wild, wild west movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually wrote all of it, and Butch did quite a bit of the artwork. And then uh, Will Smith said that there was nothing in his contract that would allow for a comic, so it was canceled right in the middle of doing it. Which, Which doesn't change because the art was gorgeous. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Wouldn't he still collect royalties on that as well? I mean, yeah, but you know, it's Will Smith. You know, yeah. You know, what, what would that be for him? <laughs> right, that's that's, on his yeah. pizza. You know, yeah. You know, he probably has more money in the in, in between the cushions of his couch. <laughs> right. I bet you he does. Um, so, okay, going back to the, the writing process, because, again, you're sort of known for being very prolific. You, uh, Unlike most writers who are one or two, you're often known for writing three, four, or more titles a month, every month for, for a long period of time. Um, what is your average workday like? Are you sort of a night owl? Or are you an early bird? Uh, where do you like to write? Um, are you one of those writers who likes to write in sort of a marathon cram session for 12 hours at a time? Um, only interrupted by meals, and bathroom, and, and, and sleep breaks, or do you pace yourself? Uh, or... I sort of I sort of write in fits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I have an office in the house, and I'm in there most of the time, and I just sort of, you know, um, I'm not, you know, tapping away at the keyboard as much as I am just sitting there, kind of, you know, noodling around. And then, and then once I get going, I sort of write hot for a few hours, you know. Right. And then uh, the hardest part is convincing myself to stop. Like, okay, you've done enough. You know, you you can you can sit down at the dinner table and and look your family in the eye. You did enough work. That's funny. <laughs> for a lot of writers, it's the other way around. It's convincing yourself to start. Well, I I I got you know. Every writer has like a couple of pieces of advice that help sure. them, and and one really silly piece of advice I got a while back. Uh, was uh, don't write your last thought of the day because then you'll know where to start the next day. 
Because oh, getting I starting can. is the hardest part. So if I've got like one more page and I pretty much know what's going to happen on it, I'll stop there. That's actually brilliant. I had never heard that before. That's yeah, like it's it. simple. It's so simple. You know, it's like, well, why didn't I think of that before? Because, you know, if you write, you know, getting started is, is tough. Sure. And uh, so, you know, this way, at least I know where I'm beginning on the following day. That's great. And, I, and, and, and as far as prolific goes, I, mm-hmm. I read a, a, a quote by David Mamet that I think he actually quoted from somebody else. And he, he, he said that prolific writers are lazy. And oh. I agree with that because really? I'm, only, I'm only prolific because I, I fear actually doing a job so much that I, <laughs> I write a lot <laughs> to justify, you know, what I do. Interesting. You know? Because I'd rather write than do anything else. Sure, I mean that's you know I get that, um, and but I but I have to to say though that you know I think that the you remind me of sort of like the David E. Kelly of of comic books. I mean he's always working on stuff, multiple things, and always you know. And I, again, I would never consider. I mean I understand the the point of the of what you're saying, but you know writing for a lot of writers is, is extremely hard, and it, it's a difficult sort of painstaking process. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think that, you know, for me, and I think for, for a number of writers, it's, you write because you have to, um, because there's nothing else that you can do. There's nothing else you would love to do. And yet it's still so extremely painful. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, that, that your point of view is, is quite interesting. And, um, and I also wanted to touch on something that I, I had read somewhere where I believe you had said, that uh, because again, a lot of especially comic book writers, because comic characters are these huge long arcs, you know, because it is a serial, it's an episodic, where characters are developed over time, and you know, uh, you have months, if not years, to develop storylines and plots and things like that. Um, and I, I know a lot of comic book writers take great care in plotting out these really intricate long storylines. Where I had heard that you are an action guy that you will jump into a script, jump into a story, and just start writing. And, 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 and let your, your impulses, let your creativity just kind of come at you as it may. Is, is that actually the case? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, part of being prolific for me is staying ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. So I can stay, you know, when, when you're only a month behind your artist, right. you don't have much choice. That next script has to be, you know, ready for prime time. Uh, but, but I'm writing months and months ahead. So I might write an entire arc before the penciler ever touches it, mm-hmm. which allows me to just sort of blue sky and feel my way along the story and see what works best dramatically. And then I have the luxury of being able to go back right. over, the, over the issues of, of the arc and make sure it all works, you know, make sure I've emphasized the right thing or, you know, um, maybe a scene needs to be added here or cut there. So, uh, I pretty much, you know, throw it all down, and then and then mess with it. It's it, it's like when a, if I'm doing an adaptation or or whatever, and they say, well, let's let me tell you what I how I think you should approach it. And I said, well, if you do that, you're never going to get anything out of me. Right, <laughs> you right. You sort of have to let me make all my mistakes because if 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 you start boxing me in, you know, I'm I'm not I'm going to be second guessing myself. I'm not going to be writing. So. You know, I guess I'm more of like an instinctual writer and, and just sort of go for it. That's uh, great. And it, it sounds like you're an instinctual, but you also have the ability because, again, like you said, you're so ahead of schedule most of the time. Uh, you have that revision process. You can go back and rewrite, which is crucial, I think, in, in the writing process where 
if you're a month well, behind your your artist, you really don't have that luxury oftentimes. No, no, and, and I, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I've I've read about other writers who write the same way. Everybody approaches it differently, and I've read about other writers who 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 do the same thing I do, which is they they think of a big scene first, you know, right. the big scene, and then sort of work around that to build up to it and everything else. And in comics, it's all about the big scene. Right, it's right. all about the big visuals and, and the rest of it. And, and, and you sort of work up to where you can have that eye candy in the comic. Sort of a so, reverse engineering, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I read that there's you know a lot of guys that, that work that same way. And then there's other guys that they want to know the background of every character before they start. I mean, there's, there's as many ways to write as there are writers. Right. Well, again, then speaking about, you know, uh, like you said, there's many different ways to go about it. Um, in terms of, like, working with artists, um, how detailed do you get in your scripts? Because I know, unlike in, in the film and television, where there is definitely a specific format that's used, although, you know, again, you know, they tell you all these rules in the Sid Field books and things like that. Um, and when you get to be someone like, you know, William Goldman or somebody like that, you can break the rules because he often does. Um, right. you, you know, uh, but in, in, in comic books, there isn't any sort of template. There's no structural, at least, format that's, you know, universally accepted. Um, so how detailed do you get in your scripts? And, uh, you know, and does it depend on the editor and writer? Um, it, pretty, it depends on the artist. Um, oh, excuse if, me. Yeah. I meant, yeah, I meant I editor mean, and artist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 when I'm asked this question, I, I always use the example of, uh, you know, if you're writing a Western and you're writing that a guy rides into town and you, you want to, and you don't know who's going to be drawing it. Right. You want to make suggestions, you know, the kind of saddle and, you know, the kind of hat he's wearing and what the town looks like and what gun he might be wearing and the rest of it. Sure. And then, uh, but if you know John Severin's going to be drawing it, you just write guy rides into town. Right, because you know, you know he'll get it right. He'll 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 do everything perfect. So right, right. It, it it just depends. Like like on GI Joe, for example, I'm working on one book with Will Rosado, on another book with uh, Robert Atkins, and both of them excellent artists. Both of them are G.I. Joe fans. So I really don't have to write that much description. I mean, when I say this, this, and that, you know, when I say roadblock, I don't have to tell them what gun roadblock always has. You know, they know. Right. So, uh, you know, but, but, but if I don't know who I'm writing it for, then, yeah, i got to fill in all those details. And, you know, little stuff like I, I remember back on Conan for a few issues, I had Conan carrying a bow and quiver. And I would <laughs> write in a script, you know, remember, Conan has a bow. Right, well, you would have to. I mean, that's almost yeah. like, you know, heresy in the world of Conan. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I broke that. I, did, I thought it was silly that he wouldn't use a bow. But uh, he's from a, you know, he was from a people that ran around on glaciers and stuff. Of course he had a bow. Sure, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, I guess, looking yeah, back I, on it. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that issue with Roy Thomas where he breaks the bow and throws it. And I was like, no, he wouldn't do that. That's right. not realistic. So he was from, like, a Turkoman-type people. They, they lived in breathe off the bow they built an empire on the bow right but uh but you know uh you know little things that you, you know you think of you have to remind and then and then you know also more and more if you're working with an artist for whom english isn't the first language mm-hmm. you have to make the scripts kind of simple you can't have a lot of sure. nuance and if you have something in there they might not be aware of that's the luxury today i mean i can include images you know, right I can, right I can slap images into my script which is which is tremendous do you do thumbnails in, in script? 
Uh, I'll sometimes do a thumbnail if it's really complex, but I mean, I can I can pull images off the internet. Oh, gotcha. You know, if if I want a certain kind of train or or a certain kind of gun or a certain kind of helmet, I can just slap that image right in the script, which is that's terrific. Yeah, absolutely. I'm big on providing reference, and I always say to every artist I work with, if I ask you for something, chances are I have reference for it. So right, there's a reason for it. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to go running looking around for it. I'll, I'll provide pictures. You know, if you don't have them, so. Right, right. Um, so, the internet is one of those things that's uh, the greatest boon, I think, for writing because of all the research and the simplicity of emailing pictures and documents. But it's also a very, very sort of time-sucking uh, device that really can also stifle the writing process. How do you, are, are you able to just focus on on writing and tune it out, even if you have the internet up, so to speak? Yeah, I, you know, I think the internet is the antichrist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because uh, Revelation tells us that we'll all love the antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 he, but, but he's evil. Right, uh, and I think that's what the internet does. It's it's it draws us away from what we're supposed to be doing. And for writers, it's it's the worst temptation. It's probably the worst thing ever invented. You know, it's helpful as a tool. And research is like you know, I can do depths of research I never could have done before because absolutely. Of it. But uh, but still, it's like ah, I wonder what's on Facebook. You know, right, right, but, exactly. But I've sort of got you know down to where I just check my message board and I check my email every once in a while. Every few pages, I write and then go right back to it but you know so it's, in a way it's kind of a nice break but i think it'd be better to get up and walk around <laughs> right yeah but it, it's the world we live in you got to accept the world we live in right well i'm personally one of those writers that i i can't go back and forth like every few minutes i literally have to turn everything off and just write because if i go on oh let me check my facebook then like two hours later i'm surfing the internet looking for something or wandering around buying something on amazon or something Right, right. It doesn't work for me that way, but uh, I think it's great that you can do that. Um, I only wish I could. Um, well, maybe over time. Yeah, maybe. Because yeah, it used to suck up a lot more of my time. You know, Daniel Neal used to say that any technology reduces your work output by 10% until you get used to it. Oh, I see. <laughs> so he said every time you change computers or whatever, right. you know, it's going to bite into your time. As you're fidgeting like, with it or doing whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what, what is a, a website that you spend a lot of time wasting on just out of curiosity? Are there any, um, like have well, I, I, yeah, I got my own, you know, which mm -hmm. I'm on the message board, uh, you know, dot net. Right, right. And yep. I'm not on, I'm, I'm on Facebook now and then, but not that much because I find it a disheartening experience. But uh, <laughs> why, why so? What specific? I don't know. The not how so? What specifically? I guess. Well, the internet in, in general is a disheartening experience because you can you can have a site that's about you know kittens, you know, sure. and and two pages into the comments, it turns into like this you know race baiting nightmare. It's, <laughs> it's just those vile things people say to each other in right. total anonymity, and it's like, well, what is this all about? You know. <laughs> Uh, that's why I like my own message board because we it's moderated. We have five moderators who are on oh, there at any given time, and sure. you know you sort of have to follow the rules of the road. If you want to have an argument, fine, but but it has to be civil, and you you basically have to bring something to the argument other than just you know you're wrong. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, it's probably my my own site I spend the most time on. Well, that's good, productive, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I often get asked this when I take meetings with, you know, uh, producers or studio executives. 
Um, again, I'll, let me preface it by saying that anyone who I meet, they are told, you know, uh, that I used to own a comic book store. So, and I know all the big properties, Marvel and DC, you know, are tied. DC is obviously Warner and Marvel now and you know, Disney. Um, so those properties are sort of off limits. So, but every time I go into a meeting and, you know, with somebody and they know that I used to own a comic book store, they always ask me, so what is the next, what, what hot properties are yet undeveloped? As if I'm just going to, you know, throw something out that's going to be the next 300 or the next Walking Dead or whatever it happens to be. Um, right. Which comic that you've written, uh, whether it's, you know, sort of a creator-owned property or, you know, obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, Marvel, DC, some other uh, comic book-related property, com- company-owned property, uh, which comic that you've written do you think should be, has a potential, which you think should be developed into a film or a television project? Um, that hasn't been. I know, again, you've had, you know. Yeah, if I've danced. Yeah, Hollywood. you've danced with the devil, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and and continue to and do continue so, to do but, <laughs> but uh, I don't dance with as much energy as I used to. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I you know I did a I did a book a number of years ago, a miniseries called Winter World, mm-hmm. that I think would would make a would make a good movie. It wouldn't be that hard to film. In fact, they 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 did film it, but they called it Water World. And right, exactly. All, and they and they left all the good parts out. <laughs> right. So, but but um, yeah, that's that's probably the one that I think is the most would lend itself to movies Very the most. Um, and you know, again, we had just mentioned that you had had things developed like again, Birds of Prey, uh, which was uh, developed into uh, a television show on the WB, right. um, as well as Alias, which is obviously not to be confused with the. Uh, J.J. Abrams, the Jennifer Garner show, uh, right. actually an 80s, sort of 80s, 90s Hitman comic. Um, yeah. Uh, what happened with that? Because, I mean, Frank Darabont is, is one of my favorite screenwriters. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, and, uh, you know, the cast was supposed to be what I thought was Nicolas Cage and Gene Hackman, if I can correct. Yes. Uh, yes. Dante directing it. Whatever happened with that property? Well, they got two weeks from principal, starting principal photography in, uh-huh. I think, New Orleans. Right. And uh, Universal pulled the plug because they didn't think Nicolas Cage could carry a movie. Okay. So that was it. <laughs> and then, and that, I mean, that's like that's when I realized that there's no such thing as a sure thing in Hollywood. Right. Because, absolutely. I mean, that's as sure as you get. Right. No, absolutely. And I, you know, the, the the good thing that came out of it, well, the good and bad thing that came out of it was, you know, I had a few phone conversations with Frank Darabont because he called to ask me. But it, but but at the time he wasn't Frank Darabont. He was just this guy, right? Who had, written, who had written a John Claude Van Damme movie, right? Right. And uh, you know, which I made I made fun of the movie a lot. <laughs> uh, the, the Death Warrant, the one where he goes to prison, I think. And uh, so I made fun of him at his own expense about that right. movie. And then of course he goes on to be this Academy Award winning guy. And then right, years right. later, he writes another screenplay based on something I did. Uh, he wrote. A screenplay for Way of the Rat, which I did okay, at, right. uh, at Cross Gym, and right, a, right. a brilliant. Well, the Alias screenplay is very good. The Way of the Rat screenplay was brilliant. I mean, right. I wanted to see that movie just because I wanted to see it. Sure. But um, so, um, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, I've been like, you know, left at the altar so many times. Right. <laughs> but, you know, 
So, you know, it just never seems to work out for me. But, but you know, it, it, at the end of the day, it's fine because I only ever wanted to be a comic book writer. So. Right, which I, I had heard you say before, which I find uh, really great. And, and, you know, and it, obviously it's apparent in your work. You're not one who dabbles in it, you know. And, and it's not that I don't respect. I think Kevin Smith is a good writer. Um, but, you know, obviously his, his foray into writing Green Arrow and, and you know, other writers, of which there are many, many who just, like, dip their fingers into comic books. Um, I, call them tour- I call them tourists. Tourists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the insider term for writers who... Uh, yeah, it's like, I live here. But, right. you know, they're just sort of passing through. <laughs> but, I mean, there is a difference, not only in the quality of the writing, but in the depth of the writing. Because you're there, you know the history of these characters, you've worked in, the, in, in, in this medium for so long. Right. Um, I, I don't think I think people nowadays and that's another thing that I wanted to touch base uh, with you on is how sort of Hollywood's infatuation with comic books, you know, after the success of, you know, a few movies here like Batman uh, right. Begins and Iron Man, it's sort of a, a renaissance of sort of these comic book uh, created uh, transfers, I guess I could say something like that. Right. Um, uh, so. W- and, and and so a lot of people, it seems, are going to, like Image, for example, uh, submitting material to get a comic book for the sole purpose of getting that comic book developed into a project. Right. Um, what is your feeling on that as, again, a, a sort of a veteran stalwart of the comic book industry? Well, I mean, I've done it myself. I mean, I, I developed a couple of properties that I didn't even bother to go to publication. I, I, I worked out the outline, worked out the first script, had a, mm-hmm. you know 30 or more pages of artwork done, and began shopping it from there. And uh, I've got one, you know, that, that has a lot of, in, you know, it's the same old story. It's got a lot of interest from, like, sure. you know, big-name guys with lots of money. But, you know, of course, they could, you know, you know order the wrong sushi tomorrow and change their mind, you know, about what they want to do. But... But, you know, uh, they seem to be serious right now about, you know, like a, a big summer blockbuster based on a comic that no one's ever seen but them. Right. You know? uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think it's great, but the reality of it is is that Hollywood is infatuated with comics because they've had some success with comic-based material. Right. And it's cheaper. Sure. Um, because if you if you hired someone – if you hired a screenwriter to do what Frank Miller did on 300, it would cost you a few million right. to develop it the way Frank did. Right. Uh, Basically, he wrote the story and did all the storyboards. Exactly. And you can and you can show it, you have something you can show to investors. Absolutely. You know, uh, you can show to potential distributors. You know, and everything else. So a lot of that work has been done for them. So it's it's easier to to put it into pre-production or at least start talking deals. Mm-hmm. And um, so you know. I mean, and and then you know, it, there's some like with Walking Dead. I mean, there there's some evidence, well, a lot of evidence in the comic book business that this is a successful property. I mean, sure. it's been a phenomenal property, especially in this comic market. That you this breakout hit that's selling to you know um, to casual readers in addition to comic fans. So that a, a TV producer can go into that with some comfort that well, there's something here right, that there's people an, are responding to. Right, exactly. So you know, um, so I mean that's good, and and also to see some of the respect they're getting. I mean, I never thought I'd ever see an Iron Man movie, let alone an Iron Man movie that did service to Iron Man. Sure, absolutely. It, it, it's 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 a good movie. It's an edgy movie, mm-hmm. and it, it it sticks with what 
you know, Stanley laid down. Right. Which, you know, I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. Right, so, right. So um, I think it's been a good, you know, a good relationship overall. Uh, plus, you know, it's nice to see comic creators, you know, making some cash. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, you know, we had spoke before um, about uh, royalties, which um, which I think is something that's very interesting, uh, where you – Maybe you can go over it again, where you've explained how uh, you know royalties work in, in comics. You know, creators, writers such as yourself, you know, do get royalties when, even if the property is owned by you know Warner Brothers slash DC, you know, as a writer, as a creator, so to speak, of of characters, of ideas, plot stories, uh, you can profit from it as well. Yeah, well, 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 at DC, there's like hard and fast rules about it. At Marvel, it's it's they're not referred to as royalties; they're referred to as incentives. Which means they're like gifts. They can give them to you or they can withhold them. So, you know, some people at Marvel get money when a movie's made based on elements they created, and some people get nothing. Mm-hmm. At DC, it's it's more carbon stone. There's there's contract sign. There's graphs. Uh, when when Bane appeared in Batman and Robin, that, right. that Joel Schumacher Travis, did. which I which I worked on, I, I, I really okay, to. yeah, okay. Well, I'm not going to blame you. Yeah, no, uh, I, I didn't have anything to do with any of the creative aspect. I worked on <laughs> so, yeah. But but <laughs> when they when they used you know Bane uh, as the henchman in that, right? Um, it was the first time that a participation character from DC had ever been used in a movie. Mm-hmm. So they had to create a um, like an algorithm. Oh, okay. <laughs> So they created literally a chart, just for that, you. That, well, for Bane, that, right? That was which you was created, the, which I created, yeah. Right. And and it includes his screen time, how much dialogue, oh, and, and and level of importance of story, and how many story elements were used from you know the creators, and and all of this you know is on the chart, and then they pay you based on that. So you get a percentage of what Marvel or what what DC made off of that. In addition, a percentage off of action figures. I mean, right. Bane has been a spaghetti shape and SpaghettiOs, and, <laughs> and all of that figures in. And, and now he's going to be sneakers. Right. Uh, and you know. So. Well, yeah, because the, one of the big stories is that he's going to be in the the, the Dark Knight, the new Chris Nolan. Yeah, Batman. yeah. So. And, and he's going to be in it a lot. Right. So uh, it'll be a, a different payday. So time uh, to buy a new house. Uh, well, maybe move to a slightly larger one but, <laughs> but 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 it's um you know it and and, and it, but they see there's rules like when sure. birds of prey was made in the television series um i didn't create any of the characters right so right. so there was like a, a single payoff okay uh so if that series had run for years you know i wouldn't have gotten anything more unless they use story elements which they didn't use any story elements from the comic right which is obvious to anybody who watched it <laughs> Yeah. So, in, in fact, I, I met Dina Meyer, and, uh-huh. and she said she was disappointed because when she got the role of Barbara Gordon, she went to a um, a, we, a guy who was, you know, uh, a place to learn how to use a wheelchair, uh-huh. and she got really good at using a wheelchair, and then she went to some martial arts guy who trained her how to fight from the wheelchair. Wow. And then she gets to the set, and they have this, like, totally electrically powered wheelchair. Oh, weird. And she said, that wasn't in the comic. <laughs> That's very Professor X-ish. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So she said that she, um, she said, but, you know, they didn't use anything from the comic. Right, right. Wow. Which unfortunate. But but the yeah. thing is, you know, but, but, but if it's a character I specifically created, or even a concept, right. like um, I, I was the first one to name Robin's car, the Redbird. 
Oh, okay, and right, so, right. So I own a piece of anything that Robin drives, be it a motorcycle or jet, whatever it is, as long oh. as it's referred to as the Redbird. Interesting. So, you know, DC's been, you know, it's very equitable. It's, it's, a, it's a great arrangement they have. It's a great deal. And, you know, you can, you can hit the lotto if your character goes on to do other things. Right. Instead of sitting in the movie theater crying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when I went to see the, the Punisher movie with Thomas Jane, I mean, there's an entire scene in that movie lifted right out of a comic that Johnny Romita Jr. and I did. Right. And it, it, down to the dialogue, down to the cuts, it's, it's like I wrote it and Johnny storyboarded it. Right. And I, I didn't see Dime One. You didn't get the incentive gift on that one? No, I, didn't, I did not get the incentive. I was not gifted. Well, so. that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah, but, you know, that stuff happens. Yeah, so. I guess it's the nature of the, the business. Yeah, it's you know as long as you know the rules going in, you know Marvel it's strictly work for hire and no extras. Right. And and uh, at DC you know it's more of a, you know you're you're in business with them. Right. Right. Um, well, uh, that's really all the time we have for now. I don't, I'd love to talk to you more about so many other subjects and topics and things like that. Um, well, we, we'll have to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Um, sure. We do have a, a section where I'd like to call it rapid fire, where I'd like to ask you, it's only half a dozen questions, and it's like an either or. Okay. And you can just, you know, go with however answer you want to feel with. Uh, Mac or PC? Uh, PC. Uh, cake or pie? Pie. The good, the bad, and the ugly, or the wild bunch? Oh man! <laughs> you knew they weren't all going to be cake or pie, right? Uh, I got to. I, 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 it hurts me, but I got to go with good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, well, Sergio Leone. Yeah, he uh, he's pretty amazing. I got to be honest. I mean, it's the yeah. one I watch more often. So. Right, right. Although, again, you know, Peckinpah is brilliant too. The Wild Bunch is fantastic. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, Wild Bunch got to watch at least once a year. Good, the bad, and the ugly at least two, three times a year. Yeah, anytime the good, bad, bad, and the ugly is on like AMC or something like that, you got to. Stop right. Watch. Um, okay. Better television series: the old Adam West Batman or the old Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno Incredible Hulk? Oh, the old Batman. Okay. Uh, better movie: Chris Nolan's uh, uh, The Dark Knight or either the Ang Lee or Eric ba- and Eric Bana or the Louis Leterrier Ed Norton Hulk. You can pick whichever one you want. Okay. Well, what were the choices on the Batman? Um, just Chris Nolan. I guess you could also include uh, uh, the Tim Burton Batman. I don't think. I guess I, I guess the Chris Nolan. Yeah, the Chris Nolan, and I like the the Edward Norton Hulk better. Okay. Um, and since you live in Tampa, uh, the Devil Rays or the Bucks? Oh man, this is such a football town. I guess I can uh, with Lightning too, but I really don't know anything about hockey. It's a hockey town too. It's the weirdest it's real? thing. It is. Huh. They're crazy. Well, we got a lot of Canadians down here. Visiting. Oh, I see. And I lived in Philadelphia. I thought Philadelphia was a football town. Right. I had no idea until I got to Tampa. Man, this is a football town. Which is so I weird mean, they, because your, your Tampa Bay Rays are, I guess they're not the Devil Rays anymore. They're Tampa but nobody Bay goes Rays. to see them. But they're like in the, you know, the AL playoffs every year, it seems. They're an, they're an awesome team. Yeah. No one, I think there's too much baseball here because we have all the spring training. And oh, yeah. The Yankees and they've yeah. got a lot of competition. It's a shame because it's a fantastic team. Whoever thought the Rays would be a great team, but right. they did. They've built a great team, but no one goes to see them. But, so right. I got to go with the Bucks just because they're like gods here. No, but for you, I mean, are you more of a Bucks for me, fan or Rays fan? Uh, or Lightning fan? Yeah, actually, I've been to more hockey games than anything else. So I oh, guess okay. i got to go with the Lightning. Oh, okay, cool. Interesting. Um, and last question is Batman or Robin? 
<laughs> Batman. Everybody wants to be Batman. Okay, I, I had to throw that in there, but I mean, because I, I know you, you know, I don't, you yeah. didn't obviously create Robin. Obviously, he's been around, but you basically, you know, ushered him into the spotlight, you know, uh, with the, the, the Robin limited series and, you know, that whole thing. He was, you know, very much an ancillary character before you kind of came along and kind of propelled him. Into yeah, the- I, and, and I got to say that Batman really isn't really at all he can be without Robin. Really sure. Robin. It's, it's very he's different. Just, he's just a psycho loner in a weird outfit. Right. <laughs> he's, he's Alfred and, and, and Danny O'Neill's the one that schooled me on this. Alfred right. and Robin, they ground Batman sure. in reality. Right, right. So. Very cool. Well, I appreciate it so much, Chuck. Um, no problem. Th- this is fun. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, for listeners, you can visit Chuck 24-7 at his website, Dixonverse.net. And for more information on our show, including a Q&A print interview with Chuck, which I have to send you, uh, please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com, although by the time people listen to this, uh, they will be up. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptsscribes. There's no and in between there. Uh, thanks for listening, and we appreciate it. 